All right. Good morning or good afternoon, good evening, whatever time zone you're listening to. Um, this is Leah, the Executive Director for the National CMB Foundation, and we welcome you to this podcast episode. I have some phenomenal guests with me today, including uh, my co-host, Jane Gaffney, who serves as a CMB volunteer and is a CMB parent. And we're super delighted to not only have him, but the National CMB Foundation's Program Director, Amanda Devereaux, joining us today. For those of us who are new to the podcast, I just want to let folks know that the podcast is a wonderful opportunity for us to highlight advocacy, research, and education efforts around congenital CMB. Our work and our purpose and our call and mission is to inform and educate others, particularly women of childbearing age, about preventative measures related to CMB. In the U.S., CMV, congenital CMV, occurs in about 1 in 200 births. And because CMV is a silent disease, meaning most people have no idea whatsoever that they are infected and have no signs, uh, the mother is likely unaware that she has CMV during pregnancy and, in addition to that, may not be aware of the risk and complications related to that. And so the podcast, again, is a great episode or a great avenue for us to share advocacy research in that area and to make sure we're increasing awareness around these efforts to prevent congenital CMV for the next generation. And Shane, I will turn it over to you. Great, thank you. So this is gonna be a little bit different episode where we're actually gonna be interviewing Kalia and Amanda, who both work at the National CMB Foundation. Um, and then we'll go into a couple background information about them first, and then we'll cover a few things in terms of um, their key roles in the organizations, as well as talk about some disparities of equity in the maternal health space. Um, so I'll kind of break the ice here. Kalia, I know you're a lover of tea. So I read on Twitter, what is your favorite kind of tea? So that's a convoluted question, Shane, because I have a tea addiction. So for anybody listening, um, keep that in mind. I accept tea for Christmas, birthdays, holidays, you name it. Um, super love, super, super lover of chai tea, any type of chai tea. Um, I have a sweet tooth for a London fog as well. Um, and I like textures <laughs> in tea. So any type of boba, lychee jelly, um, I'm a fan of that. Green teas are great too. So anybody listening, anywhere out there, bring me tea. That is all the gifts I need. But yes, I am addicted to tea. Love it. Awesome. So, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of experience you have within the CMB space? Awesome, thank you, great question. So my experience actually in the CMB space, particularly in congenital CMB, uh, really began this year with my work uh, with the National CMB Foundation. I joined earlier and um, as the executive director and that really opened up my eyes to what congenital CMV is and was. I'm a woman of childbearing age myself and was floored that I had never heard of congenital CMV. And until I brought it up to my doctor myself, it had not been shared with me at all. And so was really not familiar with the congenital CMV space, research, any type of advocacy efforts whatsoever. Um, and so I've taken the time in the short, short few months that I've been here with the foundation to really increase my awareness myself of congenital CMV, um, its effects, consequences. I've gained a lot and a plethora of information from CMV parents and families who've helped me along this journey myself. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, my background 
really has delved into the, has, has really been situated around chronic disease prevention, health promotion, health behavior, um, and some health disparities and health equity work as well, primarily working on, on the international stage and then in the background of uh, cancer and chronic disease prevention. And so I began my public health career um, actually abroad as a Peace Corps volunteer. It was one of these things where after undergrad, you're twiddling your thumbs trying to figure out, am I having a midlife crisis or am I just not sure what I'm doing with life? And so I wanted to take the time to really explore my options. I knew I had an interest in public health, um, but was thinking more along the lines of like health communications, health calm type work. In my mind, I was going to be the Oprah of public health communication. I like that. Um, yeah, and of course that didn't happen, but I've gained some skills along the way. And so um, I actually lived abroad and worked abroad as a Peace Corps volunteer in the northern coast of Peru for a little over two years um, as a promotora de salud or health promoter. And I really worked with different groups and agencies in my small community. It was a semi-rural community. Um, and I worked with the infrastructure that they had in place. I worked with the primary schools, I worked with the uh, senior citizen group, and I worked with our local, very small, it wasn't even a full health department, it was more like a health post, um, to design, develop, and implement um, health behavior practices and health behavior geared programming, if you will, public health programming in the area of nutrition, family health, um, hygiene, and then, of course, um, food insecurity. And so that, that was the crux of my work. Um, and in thinking about my CMB journey, you know, when we were doing our family health section of that educational series, um, it was always like sexual health, um, sexual health, healthy practices and health behavior, but nothing really geared towards maternal and child health post-pregnancy, post-delivery or anything like that. So um, there may be some room for future collaboration there as I think about it. Um, and after Peace Corps, I returned back to the States and got my master's in public health. And ever since then, kind of ran the gamut working in chronic disease prevention, have some experience in uh, designing health education programming, evaluating that programming, and really working with uh, community-based participatory research principles um, and partnerships to move along uh, public health programming and hopefully address and reduce health disparities along the way. So that is my spiel, Shane. I love it. And you've also written five publications. Well, you have five published publications now, which is great. I read those over. And those are all very well said and very well done. Um, but I think the most striking thing to me I've read from you so far um, was people must trust the person providing the health information to them in order to receive it. I think that speaks volumes, um, which we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast in terms of how to educate uh, women of childbearing age, and I think it has to come from people that they trust, which is medical professionals as well as you know potentially some friends and, and uh, family members too. But I thought that was a very powerful statement and something that uh, struck with me um, during my research on you. So thank you for that, um, Amanda. I know I, I knew Amanda from before I knew Kalia. Um, just from the CMB parent space, from her work in the uh, CMB law passed in Iowa. So Amanda, um, if you could do the same, kind of introduce yourself and your experience within the CMB space, 
And I'd especially like to hear about um, your work as a nurse and if you heard about CMB as a nurse before and kind of what your role and what your responsibilities were in the Iowa law. If you could, that'd be great. Sure. Um, good question. Thanks. Um, I'm excited. This is my first podcast, everybody. So excited to excited to be here. Um, yeah, like you said, Shane, I'm I'm a nurse. Um, I've been a nurse for about 13 years now, and I remember learning about torch infections in nursing school. However, I would not say that I specifically remembered any of them as being largely impactful or causing a large number of birth defects. And for so, the listeners that don't know what TORCH stands for, can you just tell them what TORCH stands for, please? TORCH are the most common infections that infants are born with. And so there's toxoplasmosis, there's other, there's rubella, there's cytomegalovirus. So um, there's, when we say TORCH infection, we're referring to a few different viruses that can cause issues when, they're, when infants are born with them, CMV being by far the most common. So that, um, that is what I, what I mean when I say torch infections. Thank you for having me explain that. Um, Thank you. So th that is something that is covered in nursing school. But actually when I, when I found out about CMV more personally, when my daughter was affected, um, I went back in my, my nursing book and I looked up CMV and it was a very, very short paragraph um, specifically talking about CMV and it did not in any way capture the, um, the impact the number of children who are impacted every year, um, the number of disabilities that are caused by CMV or anything like that. I don't think that you would have left um, reading that paragraph knowing just how important this really is and how common it is also. So um, I had been a nurse for quite a few years and I was working in public health when, um, when I found out that I had contracted CMV during my pregnancy. So I'm actually one of the rare, more rare um, situations where we found out when we were still, when I was still pregnant that our daughter had been impacted. So we found out after our 20-week ultrasound and we had an amniocentesis and that confirmed that we had, um, that I had contracted CMV for the first time during the pregnancy. And so our daughter had obvious symptoms on ultrasound. And so because of that, we, we were able to get treatment during pregnancy, experimental treatment. And so we got four infusions of, of cytogam during the, during the pregnancy. And then our daughter was born at 30, um, 30, she born at 30, 34 weeks, 34 weeks. Um, she was about four and a half pounds and she spent a couple weeks in the NICU, um, not related to CMV, just, be, just related to being born early. Um, but when she was born, she did have CMV I mean, in her blood, urine, saliva everywhere. Um, and we were fortunate to be, to have her delivered at the University of Minnesota where Dr. Mark Schleiss is, is, a, is a doctor working there. And he is obviously extremely well-versed um, about CMV. If people have been in the CMV space or done any CMV research, his name comes up quite frequently. So we were, we were lucky to deliver there and she was able to get treatment for six months after birth. So that is kind of where my personal interest in CMV came from. And we, let's see, I've been working in public health for maybe, maybe five or six years when Pippa was born. My daughter's name is Pippa. And 
I had been working specifically in maternal health for a few years before she was born, working for an awesome maternal home visitation program called Nurse Family Partnerships. So really what we did in that program is we provided prenatal education to pregnant women and we helped them go through their child's infancy until their, until their baby turned two. So we were with these families for quite a long time and they were high risk, um, usually low income families who really needed support from a nurse during the pregnancy and um, infancy of the, of the baby. So we provided this prenatal education and I still wasn't aware of CMV. And so I think there is obviously a major public health gap here and it's something that we should be educating all pregnant women on. And just the fact that I was working in that space and was not aware of it um, speaks volumes. And so I, I- Aside from one whole paragraph in a giant book. Right, right, right. crazy to me, yeah. Um, so it is, it is a goal of mine to get more nurses um, educating people about this. And there are several home visitation programs um, in the country that are federally funded that I think we can um, get CMV on their radar and, and get this information out to the people who need it, the highest risk people, um, and people who generally, um, you know, are more adversely affected by, um, you know, health disparities. So that's really important to me. And then the other thing that you brought up, Shane, was just our Iowa law. So right. when we found out that Pippa was going to be born probably with um, significant effects from CMV, we were, we were obviously devastated um, in, in a few different ways and, and we felt really let down by the medical professionals, by the public health system, by the, you know, I, I guess by the prenatal care, just the fact that we had two planned pregnancies. We actually had to have some, um, some mild fertility um, treatments during pregnancy. So these were pregnancies we had gone in and ask the doctors, what can we do? What should we be doing to get ready for these pregnancies? And this was never something that was brought up. So when we found out about this, we were obviously heartbroken, we were devastated, and we found out that Utah had a law um, when, when I was still pregnant. And so we actually contacted our state legislator before Pippa was even born. And we said, listen, I'm still pregnant. I don't know what's going to happen, but this is what we're facing. And our legislator wrote us back right away. She's, she's a wonderful advocate for maternal child health. And so she, we started the process before Pippa was even born. And so that process all started in 2015 and we introduced legislation in 2016 for that session in the winter um, of 2016. And that year the bill didn't really go anywhere. Um, we asked for universal screening and we asked for prenatal education. And so that year, nothing really happened with the bill. It didn't go very far. So the next year we kind of regrouped and, and did, some, did some more work ahead of time before the session started. And so we resubmitted um, a modified bill for the 2017 session. And I would say that my husband and I were, were pretty much the parent leads on that. And we tried to organize all the families that we could find in Iowa. And we were really in charge of um, you know, coordinating this effort. And the bill did pass um, unanimously the House and Senate and was signed by the governor in the spring of 2017. So we're about three years out from that bill, um, that bill taking place. And what, what the Iowa bill says uh, is that 
number one, providers, the attending physician shall provide CMV education to pregnant women during the first trimester. So there is an education component and the Iowa Department of Public Health had to make a educational pamphlet and have that published on the site, their website. So providers should go online, get that information printed and give it to pregnant women during the first trimester. Now there's not really it's a great, great website too. Um, if parents are listening and they want more information about CMV, I think that's a really well done website as well as Utah's website too. So the, that is the prenatal education component of the law. And then the second part of the law is the screening component, which like I mentioned, the first year we asked for universal screening and we did get quite a bit of pushback on that. And so the second year we did ask for targeted screening for any infant that fails their newborn hearing screening. That part of the law did, did pass as well. So Iowa is required to have a, Iowa, oh, Iowa physicians are required to provide a CMV screening for any infant that fails their newborn hearing test within the first 21 days of life. So it's, it's not an opt-in program, it's an opt-out program. So parents would have to opt out of that and sign something saying that they do not want the testing done. Now, of course, there's, with any law, you know, you have to make concessions and, and there's drawbacks. So there is no tracking provided, which is a huge um, downside, I guess, to our law. There's no funding for tracking. So no one is making sure that this is happening. I do think anecdotally it is happening. There are hospitals who have contacted IDPH and told them what their plans are. I know the University of Iowa is working on it. I know that the hospitals in the Des Moines area, the hospital systems have um, protocols in place for how they're, how they're managing this. So I do know that anecdotally it is happening, but that is one of the drawbacks of the bill is that it is an unfunded mandate, which unfortunately a lot of, a lot of the CMV laws in the United States are that way. And it's, it's something that is unfortunate, but it's also very hard to get a, a law passed, especially um, depending upon the climate and the makeup of your legislature. Um, it, it can be hard to get something passed with funding. There's only one law right now in Utah that has funding, correct? Yeah, and, and I, I'm not really sure on the status of that. Um, we, we would have to ask, ask some of the Utah people, but I do think that in some cases, um, states that had specific funding, I think a lot of things are being reallocated. Due yeah. to, so I'm not even sure um, what the current status is on, on that. I actually spoke with Sarah Dutre a few weeks ago. She was involved with the Utah law, and yeah, she said the same thing, that they're still having funding, but the funding is being cut and re-, and re um, allocated to other areas. Next thing I want to talk about is more along the roles that you guys take within the National CMV Foundation, um, as well as the key programming that falls under your uh, purview. So Amanda, if you could start maybe, tell me a little bit more about what you do for the National CMV Foundation and what kind of programming you um, you do for them as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently the program director. And so I oversee a few of our, our main programs and provide support for some other ones. One of the big programs that I help support is the CMV Community Alliance. And so that is our ambassador program. And currently we have nine CMV parents 
who are official volunteers with us and their job is to really be the go-to CMB um, ambassador or representative for their area. And so they're kind of spread throughout the, throughout the country and they have some fundraising goals, they have some awareness goals, and they're all working on what they think is important for the year in their area. And we are providing support for them as needed and just um, you know being there if they have questions, um, helping them determine how best to meet the goals that they have as an individual CMB Community Alliance Chair. So that's one of the big programs. I help with the education and outreach too. So we're looking at all the materials on our website, seeing what needs to be added, seeing what needs to be revised so that we're providing the best education, educational materials to our families and to the providers who also use our materials in their clinics. I do some support for people who are interested in legislation. So we do provide a little bit of um, assistance just with how things have worked before and what are some tips and tricks that people have used to get legislation passed in other states. And then we also have public health awareness mini grants that unfortunately we had to put on hold this year due to COVID um, funding um, restrictions. But those grants are um, usually a hospital system or um, parents or public health professionals who want to increase CMB awareness in their area and they'll apply for a small grant to get those awareness activities started. And so we've had several different, um, several different agencies use those, use those grants to work on CMB awareness activities. I also do a little bit of assistance with the Early Career Research Awards. So those are awards that, um, you know, clinicians and researchers that are kind of earlier in their career to help get those, um, those people at the beginning of their careers interested in CMB research and education, we provide um, awards. We provide awards for research that is specific to congenital CMB. And so I do some assistance with that program too, um, just providing some of the administrative assistance for that. Awesome, awesome. That sounds great. And how about you, Kalia, as you take your 50th sip of tea during this podcast? <laughs> I know, right? I like knocking back tea. Um, I also have a coffee addiction, folks, who are listening in. Um, so is so it tea Amanda, or is it just caffeine in general then? Sounds like it's just caffeine. It, caffeine is a strong yes, but I, I would prefer tea over coffee any day. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just guzzling it away. But um, let me first start by saying Amanda is so modest. I just kept hearing her intro. I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. She's such a strong team player. I'm so so, so, so appreciative and blessed to have her work alongside me. And she really does a great job with all of our programming, serving as a liaison, making sure infrastructure and foundational things are in place so we can implement these programs. So Amanda, publicly on the podcast, I know I tell you this every week, but thank you for all the great work you do um, to support the mission of the foundation. As far as- That goes for me too. Yeah, see, Amanda, kudos, okay? Kudos. Um, um, and saying, yes, you've been a very reliable, dedicated volunteer, so kudos to you as well. Um, as you. far as my, myself and my role as the executive director, I often joke and say my job is to keep the lights on, right? Keep the lights on, keep the bills paid. Um, but in all seriousness, my role is to focus on the sustainability of the organization, um, and that's done through several avenues. One, of course, is through partnerships. 
Um, and in order to have great partners, you have to be a good partner. And so I'm, we are working collectively to expand our partnership, expand, excuse me, our partnership networks um, to make sure we're best supporting those who we wish to work alongside us as partners and vice versa. Um, and so Shane, you mentioned a quote earlier you, you found online from my work with the Society for Public Health Education, um, which I'm a member, and that quote really carried me through Peace Corps. Um, and I learned it in Peace Corps. I think we're so wired to, in our mind, create programming and initiatives that fit a need that data says exists, but we often do that without really peeling back the layers of the community that we serve. Is this important to them? Why does it matter? How do we best reach them? And so I think the best way to do that is really partnering with organizations who um, do the work on the ground, who do work with constituents, who do work with the communities to make sure um, we're also creating programming that is relevant to those that we serve and bringing in community members along the way to help in that cause as well. And so, um, again, part of my role in addition to sustainability efforts is really expanding our partnership um, efforts and partnership activities. Of course, helping to work with our partners and board members um, to solidify different funding opportunities as well um, falls under my purview. And then helping to guide the organization, particularly right now, as we pivot in the face of COVID-19. Um, as you can imagine, everyone, you know, I often tell people Amanda and I had great plans and ambitions earlier, and then COVID came in and completely laughed and like erased and crossed out and struck through everything uh, that we had planned to do. And so we're now having to pivot and think creatively on how to do so. Um, and we're super excited about what we plan to launch this fall in order to address and continue our efforts with education and advocacy, obviously just through a virtual landscape. And so that's how we plan to pivot and, and steer the sustainability shift through that. And um, we're also working collectively to do some work to make sure we address equity issues um, and disparity issues um, in the maternal space related to CMB. Yeah, I think that's a really important topic to discuss a little bit further. Um, you know, so you kind of already broached it. There is some definitely some equity and disparities in the realm of CMV, but you know, why does this why does this matter? And what are some of the ideas and the plans that the foundation has to address it? Great question. Thank you, Shane, for that. There are several reasons why why it matters. And so, you know, in just the general maternal health space in general, when you're looking at data and statistics, women of color um, are up to fifty percent more likely to give birth prematurely across the board. Um, and that's near and dear to me as I was a preemie myself. Um, we also see stats and numbers surrounding uh, black babies or black newborns are more than twice as likely to die um, than white babies and before their first birthday, which you know is just mind blowing. Um, and then you have numbers of maternal health related deaths. You see black women and women of color are more than likely than their white counterparts to die from pregnancy-related causes. And so when you think about this in the microcosm of the spectrum of maternal health in general, you're already starting from some deficit or something that needs to be addressed, I should say. And I think this data is just the tip of the iceberg. I think what all organizations and entities should focus on is what's beneath the surface. And as we all know, the majority of the iceberg is beneath the surface. And so I think that's where health equity and health disparities come in. Um, health disparities in the maternal space, just like disparities in other spaces, tell us that there's a problem. You know, disparities just simply mean unequal. 
So for whatever reason, there are unequal health outcomes, unequal deliveries and healthy pregnancies. Um, so we need to peel that back even further and say, okay, if you think of disparities as the car, equity and inequity issues are kind of the gas. So why is it that we're seeing this disparity? Is it lack of access to care, lack of health insurance? Are folks living in not just food deserts, but health-related hospital medical care deserts? Um, is there mistrust between the medical system and these communities at large? And, you know, you have to look at it from kind of a, a bird's eye view. You know, this, we didn't just wake up and, had, and fall into this issue. You have situations dating back from years and years and years and centuries of mistrust, of discrimination, and other factors at play. And so that's the general landscape. And as it relates to CMV, and, you know, Amanda certainly chime in, we do know that there are disparities there. Um, and more research is needed to kind of peel back um, why those disparities exist. But I think we have a really solid foundation here as far as looking at these general numbers and stats that I mentioned earlier and saying, okay, there's a problem here. We need to address it. Um, and how can we best address it in our lane? Um, this is something I've shared with, you know, foundation members and, and board members um, throughout this year. I don't expect us to be a catch-all. I don't expect us to have all the answers to these issues related to equity and disparities. But I think if we just focus on what we do and do well and make sure we're addressing these issues, we can help alleviate some of the problem, increase awareness around it, and hopefully increase different uh, practices, advocacy efforts to kind of move the needle forward to lessen the disparities and to lessen the burden. Um, and so as we've seen earlier this year, as we've seen throughout this year, you know, we're not just focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. We have social unrest, uh, racial tensions and unrest, and all that I think comes into play when you think about maternal and child health, um, maternal and child health care, particularly for uh, women of color and community of color. So that's my spiel on that. Amanda, I've probably talked the last 20 minutes on that, so you can go ahead and chime in if you have anything you want to add. Well, I, I don't have a lot to add, and I, I appreciate Kalia's knowledge and expertise on this topic, and this is an area where, you know, my previous work experience is, is huge also, just working with high-risk, low-income pregnant women, and uh, another thing that's, that's super um, important is, is the stillbirth rate for Black women is, is significantly higher. I, I, I don't want to mis misquote, but I, I think it's twice the rate of, of white women. So, and we know that CMV can be a cause of stillbirth. So I, I think that there's a lot of different ways that CMV is, is disproportionately affecting people of color. And I agree with what Clea said, though, we need more research on this, um, you know, why and, and how we can address it. And so I think Clea and I are brainstorming ideas on how we can reach populations who are more at risk for, um, you know, the detrimental effects of congenital CMV. And, and I'm here to to work with Clea and, and support that because I think that it's extremely important as well. Uh, what are some of the ideas and plans you have to address it? Yeah, so I think um, that's where these key partnerships come in. Um, you know, and, and Shane, you've been good for quoting this for a while since I've known you this year. Uh, you know, you, you can only do so much going alone, right? And so we're going to need key partners to help us best understand some of the needs of the communities that we do want to outreach into. And so we're planning to expand these partnerships. Who are these organizations that we can partner with who have um, great programming and uh, effective programming um, with communities of color that we can partner with to uh, plan programs, to help evaluate programs, 
to reach out and foster and implement education and outreach efforts, even if it's virtually. Um, we want to definitely make sure that, you know, we don't shy away from it. We don't necessarily have to be experts in it, but let's bring the experts to the table. What type of webinar series or a webinar or even podcast episode further down the road can we do with experts in the space who can really speak to this type of work? Um, and so those are some of the activities where that have kind of been percolating in the atmosphere and the universe, if you will, that we thought about to really tease out and get started on this year to actually see come to fruition. Do you have anything to add to that, Amanda? Um, I would echo what Kalia said. Just we, I really want this information to get to partners who can get the information to the people who need it. And I think that that's a problem right now is women aren't getting this information. And one of my biggest principles in, in my public health nursing career is people deserve to have the information and then they can do with the information what they choose. And it's just not right that women aren't getting this information, especially women who are at higher risk to be impacted. So I agree with Kalia. It's, we've got to find different ways to, to reach the populations who need the information the most. We had a really successful CMV Awareness Month in June, and then Amanda organized a very successful Strides for CMV event in Minnesota. Um, so when it comes to CMV research, advocacy, and education, what is the take-home message you want to leave with our listeners today? Amanda, we'll start with you. I would just say that even with everything going on in the world, in our country, CMV is still here and it's still a major problem and it's not going anywhere. And so it's still very important for us to continue our work. And there are lots of ways for people to help with that and to advocate in their own areas. And I think that we can provide support for that. And there are ways to do, to get, to get things accomplished virtually, even when we're not able to get together physically. So I would just encourage people to find out how they can help spread awareness in their area. And we are happy to support that. And what about you, Kalia? Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I echo Amanda's sentiments. Um, I may, you know, differ just a bit by saying, you know, no effort is too small. So I often think when we get into these um, taxing, perilous, stressful times of life that we're in right now at times, we often think we can't contribute if it's not some major massive movement. And I definitely want to debunk that myth um, to echo again what Amanda said. Um, you know, we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for suggestions for partnerships, um, suggestions for program ideas. Um, and so if you have an idea, uh, big or small, don't hesitate to send that to us, to send it our way. Um, furthermore, you know, donations are great, but don't feel like you have to donate, uh, you know, a million dollars to make a difference. Do what you can with what you have. Every little bit adds up, and that's how we pick up momentum and steam. And so our work is extremely important. CMV, congenital CMV, is not going anywhere, as Amanda said. It is still here. It is still impacting families and quality of life and, and lives of, our, of our, our CMV community kids. And so I want to make sure that we have things in place to keep our work going past this pandemic, past whatever else is going on in the world. And so no effort, no input is too big or small. So please share. Please spread the word. Um, it's really going to help keep momentum going as we as we pivot and as we think about the long term. And if you do have a million dollars, feel free to donate it. We'd happily take it. Just kidding. <laughs> Thank you, Shane, for that shameless plug. I echo Shane's sentiments as well. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, this is weird because now you have to close it, Kalia. Because <laughs> you, you, you know the closing. All right. And so, Shane, I appreciate your effort in helping to co-host and facilitate today's discussion with Amanda and myself. I know it was a little offbeat since you were kind of interviewing the both of, both of us, but thank you so much for your time today. Amanda, you were awesome as always. Again, publicly, I so value and appreciate working with you. You rock. You're awesome. And to our listeners out there, thank you so much for giving us a few moments of your time today to learn more about the Foundation's efforts around congenital CMV advocacy, research, and education. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge um, that today's podcast episode is hosted and sponsored by Moderna Therapeutics, one of our key partners and biotechnology companies that's been working very closely with us. So we thank them for their support um, and we look forward to future podcasts in the future. Thanks everyone for your time today.